Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is five turning points in the quest for U.S. energy independence. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, and with me today is Dr. Merrill Matthews, our resident scholar. Today we're talking energy policy, and Dr. Matthews is going to talk us through five key turning points in the quest for U.S. energy independence. Dr. Matthews, ending America's reliance on unpredictable foreign producers for oil and gas is really one of the most significant developments in recent American history, isn't it? It it absolutely is, Tom. The United States has achieved a goal almost unimaginable just a few years ago, and that is energy independence. And the reversal of fortunes is a result of engineering and innovation, which has led to stable energy prices for consumers, even in the midst of uh, Middle East turmoil, Uh, a boost in manufacturing, higher paying jobs, uh, a reduction in the balance of payments, and a thriving economy. Uh, For the first time in many Americans' lifetimes, uh, the country could soon be no longer be dependent upon uh, foreign sources for energy needs. Uh, indeed, in the near future, other countries may be dependent upon the United States for their energy in, uh, needs. This is important because we're in the midst of a discussion about a Green New Deal. And this Green New Deal could endanger the very success that we've come to achieve here. So I'm going to talk about these five turning points. And the first one is what we call peak oil. And that's the coming of peak oil. Uh, Back in 1956, geophysicist Marion King Hubert uh, proposed what he called the peak theory. And the idea was that global oil production would peak around the year 1970, whereupon production from that point on would start going down and we would increasingly not be able to produce the oil that we need. Now, uh, with respect to U.S. oil, crude oil production, he was actually right. It peaked around 1970, and natural gas actually peaked around 1973. Now, people didn't pay much attention to that prediction at the time. I mean, until, until 1973, we had plenty of oil. We could go and get, uh, get gasoline anywhere we wanted. It was cheap. And, and the key point is energy was abundant and affordable, and people ended up taking it for granted. So they didn't really pay any attention, and they didn't really um, uh, do anything to prepare for that. That all changed with the Arab oil embargo that came in 1973, when several Middle East countries decided to impose a crude oil embargo to punish the United States for its support of Israel. And the resulting high gasoline prices, long gas pump waiting lines, and consumers occasionally occasionally faced with shortages uh, angered the public, and it angered Congress, and Congress decided to do something about it, which actually took us to the second turning point. Uh, Congress back in the 1970s, mid-1970s, decided they were going to try to address this problem to see if they couldn't take the U.S. towards more energy independence. And they passed a number of uh, they passed a number of bills. The Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 1975, that created the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You know what that is, Tom. That's, that's that group of... Uh, 
places where we pump oil into it and it sits there for years and years. And then if we need it, we can draw on it. But um, we've had that around for years. Uh, it also created the CAFE standards. That's the standards which says our, our cars need to be able to meet a certain mileage that nobody really believes when they look at the uh, sticker on a uh, on a new car and it says it can do 25 or 30 miles per gallon. We don't really get that, but it created that and a number of other things. In 1978, they created the National Energy uh, Act. That was to create several things, including ethanol. Congress got involved in creating ethanol. That's mostly corn-based um, uh, energy that we put into our gas tanks now. Uh, 1980 was the Energy, the energy Security Act, and that introduced uh, a, an effort to promote synthetic fuels. And, and politically, uh, you're talking about a time period here that spans like the last years of President Ford, the Carter administration, and even into the early Reagan administration. Even goes into right. the uh, early to the Reagan administration. The Energy Security Act was 1980, and that moves into that, and, and Reagan didn't change that. 1992, you had the Energy Policy Act. Uh, that, was, that created that production tax credit for wind energy out there. People see windmills out there, the wind turbines that are trying to create clean energy. Um, We funded those things for years. We provided subsidies, and that started back in 1992. Uh, In 2005, we created the Energy Policy Act, and that provided uh, tax incentives for various types of alternative fuels and created the mandate for ethanol to be included in our gas tank. So they backed off on the subsidies that they had, and they imposed a mandate. And then 2007... Uh, Congress passed the Energy Independence and Security Act. This was signed by George Bush, George W. Bush, and it was uh, it cre- required even more ethanol, higher fuel standards, and so forth for people. So Congress has been involved in this and a long for a long time now. So you just spun through like six different major pieces of legislation that were all passed as a reaction to. As a reaction constrained to, oil supplies right. and pressure in the Middle East and all that. From essentially mid-1970s to mid-2000s, so roughly 30 years there that we were doing this. And um, uh, it was all an effort to try to create energy independence so that we would not be as subject to other. This is I mean, before the real environmental movement takes off, so we wouldn't be subject to foreign countries for our oil. So Congress provided a range of subsidies and tax breaks for alternative energy. Uh, the claim is often made that federal government, uh, the federal government heavily subsidized fossil fuels. We've heard that in the presidential debates and other things. That's just absolutely not true. There are some tax breaks that they provide for the um, uh, for oil and gas companies, but by and large, these are gas, these are tax breaks that uh, are available to almost all kinds of manufacturing and other types of uh, uh, industries like that. But the Congressional Research Service actually did a breakdown of this to ask where are the tax breaks out there? What kind of tax breaks are we providing? And they found that the um, that we provide significantly more tax breaks for the clean energy industry than we do for the fossil fuel industry. So it's significantly more, and it's it actually exacerbates it because fossil fuels produce so much more energy, and we do, so much more of our energy needs are met by that, that it's really a very small part 
of the um, of the tax breaks that are out there. So Congressional Research Service points out that even though there's like, there's like four point six billion dollars in tax incentives that go to the oil and gas industry. That's a small portion of all the tax breaks they do for energy, they provide for energy, and that actually is mostly for things that are just standard for other companies. So we do provide subsidies and tax breaks out there, but by and large, the large majority of that goes to the um, renewable energy industry, the clean energy industry. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's Congress getting involved in this and making a number of changes. Which leads us to the third. And and the reason they did is because we thought we were going to be running out of oil and gas. And that takes us to the third uh, turning point, the fracking boom. Now, you mentioned, you know, I mentioned that the the last major legislation was 2005, 2007. That's just about when the fracking boom really begins to take off. And at that point, we started seeing we started massively increasing our ability to create new oil, crude oil and to pump out natural gas. And as a result, it has fundamentally changed everything that we thought about the energy industry because the technological improvements, fracking had been around for a long time, but because of some improvements in fracking and because of what they call um, horizontal drilling where you can drill down and then you can turn the pipe and it runs uh, for a mile to the side or something like that, we were able to break through and really increase the amount of oil and gas that we produced. It's a good point because it's not just one innovation, but it's actually several innovations all combined together That's right. that made this happen. Sometimes when people talk about fracking, they assume that that was just that's just one thing, but it's not actually. It was a combination of several of these innovations. A combination of several innovations, and that helped the U.S. become the largest producer of crude oil in the world. Uh, the U.S. Energy Information uh, Administration estimates that uh, estimate that we were producing. Uh, at the beginning of uh, 2020, roughly 13.3 million barrels of crude oil per day. Now, for comparison's sake, in 2008, we were producing about 6.8 million barrels per day. So there was a huge difference there, and we became the largest crude oil producer in the world, surpassing Saudi Arabia and Russia. Not only that, we became the largest natural gas producer in the world, uh, surpassing Russia. Russia is is close, and nobody else is even close to both the U.S. and Russia. So it's a huge, major change that we uh, that did that fracking has done. It is the uh, it's important that this transformation cannot be overstated because natural gas releases far less carbon when it's burned than crude oil and especially coal. And because we were able to create so much more natural gas, our energy power plants began transitioning over to natural gas as opposed to coal. And we've seen coal as a source for electricity generation decline over the last 10 to 15 years. The Obama administration tried to impose a number of restrictions on that. That played a little bit of a role. But what really did it was the free market. Right. Because natural gas became so abundant, it became so cheap. That kept energy prices down. It it made it uh, much cleaner for us to produce this. And as a result, um, and people have pointed this out, we actually do have a, have a much 
we've, we've dramatically reduced our carbon emissions over the last 10 to 15 years, in some cases, much lower than a number of the countries who criticize us, who signed on to the Paris Accords right. and other things. They keep blaming us for jumping out of that. But in fact, we've actually done a better job of reducing our uh, carbon emissions. Let's not let that pass without sort of underscoring it, because, <laughs> because earlier you went through like six major pieces of legislation that Congress passed to try to address the problem. Did almost nothing. Did, 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 didn't make a dent, right? Did not. Uh, Congress didn't solve the problem. It was free market innovation by oil and gas producers that actually solved the problem. And the great irony here being how we, the U.S. was criticized for not signing on to the Paris Accord, but we're like we're like the only major country that is actually reducing our CO2 emissions, not not because of any government action, but because of innovation. That's right. And and what's happened there is that we've produced so much of this now that it is we have an abundance. And we, especially in natural gas, we often have more than we can use, which leads us to a new major finding out there, which is we are creating, this is the fourth turning point, we're creating a, um, uh, a global market for oil. Part of this was created by the 2015 budget deal. Because in that budget deal, Republicans were willing to uh, to provide extra tax credits and breaks for renewable energy if the Obama administration would allow us to export crude oil. And that, for the first time since the mid-'70s, the United States was finally able to export crude oil again. And that worked out very well for us. So we're now able to export. Now, we never actually had a restriction on exporting natural gas, but it had a natural um a bump to go over, and that was you had to be able to take the natural gas, uh, cool it significantly so that you liquefy it, and then you put it into containers and ship it overseas. That was a, that was a technological um, a problem that we needed to be able to overcome to be able to do it affordably. A lot of companies did. So now we are able to both export crude oil and natural gas. Why is that important? Well, if you have a global market for crude oil and natural gas, if we end up producing more than we need, we've got markets out there that we can sell it to. And that was become, that was a major issue for President Trump, who wanted to try to make sure we had markets for these. You'll remember that he gave Germany a hard time for this Nord Stream 2 oil, uh, natural gas pipeline that Germany was in the... Agreement with the Russians with to try to import natural gas to Germany. And, and Trump was trying to say, why are you doing that? Why not buy, buy it from us as opposed to become dependent upon Russia? Because sometimes Russia, if you're giving Russia a hard time about some of their policies, they find that their, uh, their pipelines don't seem to be working as well as they did, especially in the winter. It wasn't that long ago that they cut off supplies to Ukraine. Remember exactly just a few right. years ago, they cut off supplies to Ukraine as a form of political pressure. And the question came up, why would the U.S. want to export oil and gas, especially sometimes since we still import some crude oil in various places? And there's a reason for that. We produce oil and gas at various parts around the country. That the oil and gas has to be shipped to a refiner and processed. Less processing for natural gas than there, than there is for crude oil. For crude oil, there's a major processing going on. The U.S. has... Um, our refineries are very good at, at processing 
heavy crude oil, not so much the light crude oil. They're changing that. Uh, but in some cases, we produce lighter crude oil. And so it this becomes just a market function. If you're producing crude oil on the West Coast and you can't get it to refineries because the fi- refineries are closed or they're not good at uh, producing at uh, refining your particular kind of crude oil, it may make more sense to sell it to China or to sell it to um, Europe or some other place, some other country, than it does for us to process it ourselves. So, 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 so energy independence doesn't mean we keep everything we produce and we refine it for ourselves. It just means that we are we're we're producing enough that it creates markets for us and it insulates us from political pressure from other producers. Right. And okay. so if if there if there is a major turmoil within the world, we can produce enough for ourselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to do that immediately. We may want to sell some here and import some others depending on the price, what the refinery is doing and what what's backed up and so forth. So that that um that ability to be able to export crude oil was a major turning point. That happened in 2015. And 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 the ban on exporting oil happened in 1975. That was that first major piece of legislation you talked about. So literally for 40 years, we had a legal ban on exporting crude oil un- we until 2015. We could do certain liquids from oil, but we couldn't do major crude oil. Hmm. So, uh, but that leads us to, that leads us to the fifth point in our turning point series here. The U.S. is achieving energy, not just independence, but energy dominance. We've become such a major producer in oil and natural gas that we are actually dominating the world. Our markets dominate the world. Now, the pandemic has made some changes in that, but the day will come when we're back to the normal, I think. And so the ability to be able to do that means several things. Number one, not being subject to other countries for our energy, and that's important. Venezuela, we were we were uh, importing roughly 800,000 barrels a day from Venezuela. Venezuela is not our friend anymore. Uh, the Middle East, a lot of those countries are our friends, but there have been times when they haven't been. So now that we're able to produce so much, the U.S. actually is beginning to dominate that market. We can set the price by setting by creating so much. We actually set a low price, and we're really able to help out our allies in being able to provide energy, both natural gas and oil for them. We're even able to provide it, and this has been a big issue, to China, which needs to import a whole lot of its natural gas and oil. So just by having that relationship there, if they're somewhat dependent upon us, we may be able to um, actually control some of their policies just because they need to be able to uh, get the energy they need. So I would argue that these five turning points have made a major difference in the world and in energy policy. Energy is one of, if not the most important um, industry out there in the world, especially these days when so much is dependent upon it. And we've done it by innovation and by policy and uh, by free markets. You know, I have to wonder, um, and you mentioned this earlier, but I mean, there was a time when we were dependent on the Saudis. The Saudis could essentially dictate to us. Right. Or they could, di- or the Saudis, in conjunction with a handful of other producers, could essentially dictate to us and to the world, and that's no longer the case. The, the, that balance of power is completely flipped. And I have to wonder 
if some of the geopolitical changes we're seeing right now, like the Saudis like making peace with Israel mm-hmm. and things like that, <laughs> isn't isn't partially a result of that sort of flip in power that we're we're now in a position to where we don't have to be dictated to by them. And in fact, we can dictate to them. The Saudis need markets for their oil that they produce. And if we don't need it, others do. And that, and by working with Israel, because Israel does need to be able to, to uh, buy those types of things, and by just creating a system of peace within the Middle East, something that's a little more uh, amenable to trade and economic uh, uh, sharing, yeah, I think it works out very well and may have been a factor in creating a more peaceful environment in the Middle East. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Matthews. One of the real bright spots uh, in the American economy in the last in the last decade or so has been this this switch to a position of the U.S. being globally dominant in energy production. So thanks for talking us through that today. And thank you to all of you who are listening for joining us today. You can find much more of Dr. Matthew's writing on energy policy and other issues at our website at IPI.org. Thank you so much for joining us today for our IPI Policy Basics episode, and we'll see you next time.